I want to jump in today, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, typically, when I go over as much as I did last week, like there's nobody here the following week, they're like, well, we got two Sundays in one Sunday, so we're going to skip next Sunday. So I'm glad you're here, and I understand that, and I'm going to do my best not to go over today. But I want to tell you what we're doing, and today's going to be a little different. And I, I hope that you will kind of clue in to the big picture here and not get lost in some of the details that um, I'm going to share with you. This is the kind of uh, message that you can go back and listen to again, and you may want to go back and listen to it again, and you may want to go back and listen to it several times. Um, I'm trying, I want to convey to you today a big picture of where we're going over the next few months. I don't want you to get lost in all that I'm going to share. But in order to do that, we have to address the reality that Scripture was not written the way that we think. It was not uh, given or taught in the way that we teach or in the way that we learn today in a modern Western culture. Uh, a lot of what I'm going to share with you, I, I cannot take credit for. Um, I have shared Marty Solomon in the past, uh, who um, is a, an evangelical minister uh, who does a lot of college ministry through a ministry called Impact Ministries. And about uh, 14 years ago, I think, he visited Israel, and then he walked with a rabbi for a period of time, just traveled with him, and it just blew his mind trying to understand Near Eastern, especially ancient Near Eastern thought. And so a lot of what I'm going to share with you um, it comes, is coming from him, so I can't take credit. Uh, I know I've got at least one other person in the room that's a Bema podcast follower. Um, that is his podcast. And if you would really like to take a deep dive into Scripture, um, I'm going to give you an introduction, but you can go follow. And the, he starts from Genesis 1, and then he just, he's gone on for years through the Old Testament. So you just have to go back to episode 1. I think there's like an episode like negative one, or I don't know how they number. I hate when they do that to podcasts because it totally messes up my podcast reader. But but he goes back, and you can just go all the way back to several years ago and just pick up. And if you do, you're going to hear a lot of what I'm going to share with you today. Um, and so as we get started, I, a couple of things I need you to understand. We've already been through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. I am actually going to spend some time today and next week in Genesis 1 through 11, but we are not rehashing the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Instead, our focus for this series is Genesis 12 through 50. Uh, if you do any scholarly study of the Old Testament, but specifically of Genesis, you will know that Genesis 1 through 50 was not written by one person in one sitting, or even just from start to finish. We have at least, but definitely more than two people that have contributed to Genesis. And much of Genesis 12 through 50 is attributed to Moses. Um, most of Genesis 1 through 11 is attributed to, to have been written actually after Genesis 12 through 50. So even though your Bible goes Genesis 1, 2, 3 through 50, Genesis 1 through 11 was written a good time later than 12 through 50. Genesis 12 through 50 is focused primarily on Abraham and his family. And we're not just going to go through and read these stories and go, that's an interesting story. Uh, we're going to try to understand what is the story behind the story. Because the Bible can be read at face value, and there's value at face value. But for the Bible and for Scripture to be living and active, like the Scripture that Kim just read, uh, we can't take Scripture at face value and it still be living and active. 
Now, we as Western learners have a tendency to want to say, give me the information, now I have the information. But that is not how the Bible is written. None of it is written that way. There are certainly facts and dates and things, but even the dates are usually meant to be taken figuratively and not um, factually or literally. So uh, part of what I want to share with you today is how is the Bible written? Uh, not only is how is the Bible written, I want to show you two examples of what I'm talking about. And you're going to find that in the way that, that I often teach and the way that you often learn, uh, we are very focused on transferring information from one person to the next. And so we basically would say, these are the facts. Now, here's my evidence that these facts are true. Now, you know the facts and the evidence that says these facts are true. Now, a lot of us then approach the Bible in that very same way. And we go, well, what are the facts? And what are the evidence for the facts? Okay, we have the facts. But an ancient Near Easterner did not read the Bible that way, and they certainly didn't write the Bible that way. That doesn't mean that there aren't facts available in the Bible or that there is not evidence available within the Bible. But for us, learning or teaching is a, is a transfer of information from the expert to the learner. But learning in ancient Near Eastern culture is a discovery of a deeper story within the story. So in other words, you couldn't actually say you've learned something until you yourself have discovered something new. So the Bible is an invitation to discover something new. It is not just a transfer of information. Now, let me give you a, a super simple, silly example. We uh, used to do VBS, Vacation Bible School, every year, and we would use generally one of two different curriculum providers. And at the end of the VBS week, like most other youth conferences or kids' conferences or VBSs or whatever, we would share the gospel. And the gospel was shared... Um, it was attempted to be shared at an age-appropriate level, and we would call it the ABCs of the gospel. And the ABCs of the gospel went something like this. When you would be sitting there listening, however old you were, A means that you have to accept Jesus as your Savior. B, you have to believe that God raised him from the dead. And C, you need to confess your sins and you will be saved. And then there is the gospel. Now, an ancient Near Easterner would just cringe. The uh, disciples would cringe at sharing the gospel in that way. Jesus would cringe at the way we often share the gospel. And it's not that it's just a terrible um, fault of our own. It's the reality that we miss so much of the story because we try to view the story through our modern mindset, which has undergone drastic changes in the time that it was written to the time that we are reading it. So part of what I want Genesis 12 through 50 to be, I don't want it just to be another thing about Abram, and his name was Abraham. We'll do a week on Abram getting a new name. Uh, well, we'll have to mention it because it is part of the story, but that is not the point of the series. We're not going to just get focused on Jacob and Esau, and Jacob did a bad thing and Esau did a bad thing, but instead we're going to try to figure out so Jacob did do a bad thing, and Jacob like benefited from it. Why? Why would God let Jacob benefit from doing a bad thing? And then we'll have to ask the question, did Jacob do a bad thing? And what about Esau? 
We'll have to look at some of the stories of Abraham, or Abraham once he, his name is changed, and we'll have to look at you know the fact that Abraham basically gave his wife away. The hero of our faith, in which he is the patriarch of patriarchs, of which the covenant is built, and this whole story is coming, he, he basically just kind of let another man take his wife. And we're going to have to talk about that. And you can't just read the story and walk away and say, well, I guess... I guess it was okay. Or was that even actually what happened? So one of the the tools that we're going to use throughout Genesis 12 through 50, um, I want to show you through Genesis 1 through 11. And today I want to talk about the creation story, and I also want to talk about the fall. But I want to do it a little differently, and we're not going to spend time reading through it all. We'll do a little more reading of the fall just because for you to see what I'm talking about, you need to see it laid out in the text. But I want you to see the way that Near Easterners think. And at the end of the day, I'm going to suggest to you that over these next few months, you're going to have the opportunity to go on a discovery of your own. And so my hope is not that I'm going to lay out for you a point every week and you're going to go, oh, I've got it now. My hope is that we'll raise enough questions that you'll go out and you'll discover for yourself and you may come up with answers that are different than mine. And, and if you think, well, that just doesn't seem, that doesn't seem, that seems too loose. But this is the way Scripture is written. It's an invitation into a discovery of something completely foreign to us. And we can either just gloss over it or run through it, or we've talked many times through the Sermon on the Mount about the lullaby effect. We've just heard it so many times, we just, yeah, I got it, move on. But Scripture was never meant to have that. It was not meant to, I've got it, move on. It was meant to draw you in. It is living and active. It divides. It changes. And that's why a person who falls in love with Scripture can read the same passage and be changed in completely different ways every time they approach it. Next week, I want to do the same message with you, except we're going to do it with the story of Noah because I can do... Creation and I can do the fall in a very neat few verses, but the story of Noah, which becomes kind of the next Adam, well, that story spans many chapters, and we're not going to read all the chapters either, but we are going to look at this literary tool that you'll find throughout the Old and the New Testament. All right? So I want you to stay with me, and I want you to, to just embrace this process. I don't want you to feel like you've got to get all these notes. But if you are a person who has to have the notes, follow along on version, save that to your version profile, come back and look. I've got some really helpful slides in version and some things I'm going to show you this morning that you can come back to. And some of you maybe are like, oh, I'm Mark, you act like this is all new. It's absolutely not new. No, it's absolutely not. But I will tell you this, I graduated from a seminary with three different master's degrees. So y'all can pat me on the back. You can cheer and clap if you want. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, And one of mine is a master's of divinity with a focus on biblical languages, which means I spent the majority of my seminary education trudging through translating Hebrew and Greek. And I will tell you, with all of that education... This, is, this was somewhat of a new concept for me, and I find that frightening, that I had to discover this. 
And my guess is, is that many of you have not discovered this either. So um, with no further ado, let's jump in. If you want to follow along on version, you can. If you want to, if you've got your Bible, you want to highlight some stuff, I'm going to show you some stuff to highlight. You can go back and look at it again. I'm going to have to do some diagramming up here, and I'm going to show you that as well. Uh, but as we begin, I want you to understand this. To the Near Easterner, learning happens by discovering new truths. This is how the Bible is meant to be read and explored. Now, the literary tool I want to share with you today that is found throughout the Old and New Testament is called a chiasm. Has anybody heard of a chiasm? Okay, two people have, all right? So that doesn't surprise me. Uh, this is something that is fairly new to me, and for the most part, I'm going to do my very best to explain it to you. And for some of you in the medical field, you'll know that this word is also used in the medical field, and a chiasm literally means, this is the word, chiasm, it literally means a crossing of something. So we're going to find that there's a crossing throughout Scripture, and you're going to find there are crossings within crossings or chiasms within chiasms. In the medical field, it might be described as two nerves that lay over one another and cause great discomfort. That's a, they, they, are in, they are in a chiasm. In the Old and New Testament, we're going to find that these, this crossing does two things. Um, the top forms an arrow to the middle. The bottom forms an arrow to the middle. But also, just like the X on a treasure map, where the two lines cross, there's going to be a treasure for us to find. Now, when I was in seminary, I would stay up late on Saturday nights, and there was this terrible um, TV preacher on. I can't remember his name, uh, but he would come on. But it was kind of like a you know a train wreck. Like you don't want to watch. Uh, sometimes uh, Malia. Sometimes like a couple of times. I don't want to come across completely weird here, um, but. Malia has come in and caught me on my laptop. You're thinking, whoa, what's Mark about to say? But um, she's caught me on my laptop, and I have been pulled into Dr. Pimple Popper. Um, I don't know if any of you have done that. It's very gross. It's very weird. I admit my own faults. But there are some, like, if you haven't seen, listen, listen. If you haven't seen the video of the woman who has a horn coming out of her head, you've not yet lived life. All right? So, Dr. Pimple Popper, don't do it. It will draw you in. You will be stuck. Um, but we were talking about, she said, she, we were driving, and she said, Dad, are you watching videos of Dr. Pimple Popper? No, Malia. I'm not watching. I'm driving. I'm not watching Dr. Pimple popper. There are some things that um, we come to and we see and we just can't turn away like a train wreck. But when I was in seminary, there was this teacher and he was such a bad teacher. Like, like he was gross. I mean, gross. Like he, his, they would paint, it was in California. I think it was in San Francisco. And there was this, like the front row was all of these just beautiful women and scantily clad outfits. And the the camera would pan over them, and then he would sit in the back. You know who I'm talking about? Yes, cigar guy. Yes, and he would sit in the back, and he would just smoke this cigar 
while like the worship team was leading and after every song they would stop and they would look back at him and he would sit there and he would just do this and then he would go next song and then they would turn back around and they would start it was so bizarre but then when he would teach he had a whiteboard this is why i'm sharing this story and he would diagram something to death and he would start circling everything in different colors none of it made sense none of it was true but they didn't know that because it looked good because he's up here diagram like he must know what he's talking about and i would just sit here like oh my gosh how is this guy on tv and and so i this i want to avoid that this morning but i do want you to see what i'm talking about all right chiasm Let's do two examples. Aren't you glad you got up this morning? You're already glad. You're like, this is, I'm watching a train wreck right now. All right. All right. Let's jump to the, uh, so a chiasm is a literary tool where the first part of the story mirrors the last part of the story and a treasure is found at its center. So we're like a couple of slides ahead. Um, you can, if you want to skip that next slide and then go to the next slide. There we go. A chiasm um, is a literary tool where the first part of the story mirrors the last part of the story and the treasure is found in the center. So that is our cross. Now there are different ways a chiasm can be seen. Stay with me. I'm going to show this to you. But sometimes a chiasm can, can look like just a repeat. We have an A, a B, and a C section. And then all of a sudden we have a C, a B, and an A where the beginning and end will mirror each other, the second points will mirror each other, the third points will mirror each other, and then here, this is all pointing to something right here that is the treasure of this chiasm. You don't have to remember this. I'm going to show this to you in two stories. All right? Yeah. Song U version. Most well, that's not, but most of it is. So you can have an A, B, C, C, B, A pattern. You can have an A, B, C, A, B, C pattern, and then you can have patterns within. So in A, you can have another A, B, C, C, B, A, and with all of this, we might find a treasure here. Here's our chiasm for here. And then there's also maybe a mini little story there, and there's an important part here. There are lots of these found throughout the Bible. So you don't think that I'm Sakar guy in San Francisco. Let me just show you exactly what I'm talking about. Let's go to the next slide. And this is the Hebrew poem of creation. Now we're not going to talk about whether um, creation happened in seven days or not. That's not the point of this conversation. Um, the point of this conversation is how do we read these chiasms that point us to the treasure? And what is possible and what I want you to see through this is some of these stories that we're going to go through and some of these stories that you've read that we have missed the treasure because we have been focused on the facts. All right? And then throughout... The rest of Genesis, we're looking for the treasure that has been given to us by those authors, whether it be Moses. We know it can't just be Moses 
because it details his funeral, and most people are terrible journalists at their own funeral. So we know Moses didn't write all of it, but much of it is attributed to him. All right, so follow with me if you want to turn. This is Genesis chapter 1, very beginning of the Bible. You can follow there if you want to. Uh, Here are our our cliff notes, or whatever they call the new, or not cliff notes now, what do they call them now? Students know. Not cliff notes, not the short, what's the short version? Spark, there we go. Day one, God created light and separated it from darkness. Day two, God created water and separated it from the sky. Day three, God separated land and water and created vegetation on the land. All three, the first days, God is separating things, right? Light from darkness, uh, land from water, sky from earth. And then day four, five, and six, God's filling the thing that's just been separated. Okay, this is a very modern way to read this. Um, God created the lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's day one for day two. Uh, or excuse me, that's day four. Day five, God created the birds who flew in the sky and fish who swam in the water. Day six, God created and commissioned humanity to manage the rest of creation. So how do we look at this idea of chiasm in this? Day seven, God rests. There we go. That's the, That's how it all started. Put that down in your textbook. Memorize that whenever there's a quiz when you get to heaven and God says, hey, do you remember how this was created? Yes. Day one, this is what you did. Day two, this is what you did. And if we read it that way, then the authors would cringe. What is the treasure of this story? Now, likelihood, all of us would come to a different treasure, right? Like probably whatever meaningful for us in the moment. Um, or maybe it's just the whole thing is a treasure, thinking God is creator and God created, maybe that's it. But the author actually had an intent to show a specific treasure within this story if we understand the way they think and the way they wrote, and this is how they did it. Day one, God created the... My marker is running out. Let me swap markers. Day one... Day one, God created light and separated it from darkness. Interestingly, if you jump down to day four, then what does God create? The lights in the sky that do what? Separate the darkness. Day four is very similar to day one, right? Let's go down to day five. God created the birds who flew in the sky and fish who swam in the water. But what has to happen before birds can fly in the sky and fish can swim in the water? What has to happen first? You've got to have water and sky, right? Like it's really hard for fish to swim in water when water doesn't exist. And what's created in day two? Water and sky. So day five very much mimics day two. Day six, God created and commissioned humanity to manage the rest of creation. So now we have um, us entering into the picture. And what happens on day three? So we have something to eat and we have somewhere to live. Day Six can't happen without day three. 
Uh, in a chiasm, that means what we've just seen is A, B, C, A, B, C. That's the structure that he's used. Now, if we remember that a chiasm is a cross with a treasure in the middle, we come through and we see there's some separation between day three and four. Day one, two, and three is uh, a collection of something specific. Day four, five, and six is a mirror of that something specific. So somewhere between day three and day four, a treasure is to be found. In addition to this kind of being, well, I don't know about this, we find that the authors of the story are doing even more. If we have a significant number of three and a significant number of seven, we also find that uh, the word create is used in three different places in this poem. And at the very end, it's at the, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And at the end, it's said again three times. We also find that there are three days of separation, three days of filling. The nature of God is mentioned in three different ways. But the number seven seems important too. In the original Hebrew text, verse 1 has seven Hebrew words in it. In the original Hebrew text, verse 2 has 14 Hebrew words in it, or Seven times two. And in verse three, there are 21 Hebrew words in that verse, or seven times three. If you go down to verse five, there are 35 words in that verse, or seven times five, or not, not verse, but day. I'm sorry, I should say day, not verse. The word for earth occurs 21 times throughout this poem, seven times three. God is mentioned 35 times throughout this poem. Seven times five. The phrase, it was so, is mentioned seven times. And the phrase, and God saw, was mentioned seven times. Coincidence? Now, there are people that take this kind of coding and they say there's secret knowledge to be found. We're not taking that direction. I don't think that's what this is. It's not a secret language to the day Jesus is going to return, even though many people will dissect the Bible and come up with that kind of stuff. But what it points to is that the author had a lot more to say to us than simply, this is what happened on day one, this is what happened on day two, and this is what happened on day three. So somewhere between, if you'll go back to that previous slide, somewhere in between, one before that, Somewhere around day four, we find the center of our chiasm and the word that's right in the middle of this whole poem is moed. I think I have a, do I have a slide for moed? Maybe not. I may not have put one on there. It's the word for seasons. It's also a word that is used to mark time. And it's also a word that is used to be translated assembly. Is that it? Yep. Yep, Moed. Sacred times, seasons, or assembly. So for some reason, the author has just given us all this information, and yet in this chiasm where 
the treasure is found in the center of it, there's something about seasons. Now, even if you come to this conclusion that this is about seasons, the reason that we can't just read it and go, oh, so the point of this is about seasons, like fall, winter, spring, summer. Is that really what it's about? And this is why ancient Near Easterners understood learning Scripture as something to be explored and truths to be discovered. If we jump ahead to the New Testament, we also know that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you have the Holy Spirit within you, and if you remember, the Holy Spirit within you actually has several roles, and one of those roles is to help you to not just recall but understand all Scripture. So for you today, different than um, ancient Near Eastern Hebrews at the time this was written, is you have the Holy Spirit. And there is only one person who is said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So you have a leg up on understanding this stuff as you begin to explore and discover. And so he goes on. And says, this is, this is not a direct quote, but this is what Marty Solomon says about this discovery. He says, in chiasm, you identify the treasure by finding the bookends and working towards the center. And then the word at the center is the, is the Hebrew word moed, sacred time, season, and assembly. That verse is Genesis 1.14. It says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So if we're going to understand the treasure, this is what Marty Solomon is saying. He's not the only person who says this. He says, if you want to find the treasure, there's a bookend here. There's a bookend here. And there's a treasure in the middle. Now, well, how does Genesis 1 begin? Anyone? And God said, well, but what, what was the state of things in the very first verse? Nothing. Void. Empty. Chaos. Or nothing. And the poem ends with God resting. So what is God doing at the end of this poem? Nothing. And there's this treasure in the middle, Moed, that means seasons or times. And so for someone who is reading through this scripture and is trying to understand the story that God's trying to tell, there's a period of nothing, there's a period of doing something, but this, there's a season that is important. And for someone, you might read this differently, you might explore and discover this differently based on where you are in life. A person who works nonstop. may read through this poem and discover a season of rest is the treasure. Like a Sabbath. 
yeah, it's important that God created, but maybe one of the things, one of the things that God's trying to show us through these authors is that your value in life is not solely from what you do or what you accomplish or what you produce. There is a time for work and there is a time for rest. And we can see that in that chiasm. All right. I want to jump to the next one because I think it's easier to see in the next one. And this one, if you're not on version, you should jump on there because I've got a slide that will show this. The bookends for him are nothingness. God brought order to nothingness and chaos. God rested and did nothing after creation was complete. The center, there is a sacred time or seasons which are for rest. For them, the Sabbath happened every week. There are all kinds of things you can glean from that. If you go back and you talk and, and you look at um, when the days are created, there was evening and then there was morning. So there's a there's a treasure right there. Your day begins the night before. Like you woke up this morning thinking your day's beginning, but your day actually began last night. There was evening and then there was morning. So some of us, we abuse our evenings. We stay up way too late. We wake up in the morning and there's nothing left. But if we had viewed the beginning of our day as that evening, we may have made different choices last night, right? And some of our lives would be radically different if all we did was reorder our thinking of our day, not from the time we wake up to the time we go to the bed, but the time we go to bed through the morning as a day. Well, that's something you might discover and find and maybe even have a practical something to take out of this for the way you do your day. The, the Sabbath was always practiced daily from Friday night at sundown to sundown on Saturday, a day, full day, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, and they would fast during that period of time. Every week, this sacred season was important to them, all right? So our, our sermon of the day is not about the Sabbath. It's for something for you to see. There's a time to work. There's a time to stop working or to rest. Let's jump to the fall. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 13. And I have all of those. Uh, it's cutting off the very bottom. But that's okay. If you want to follow along um, on version, it shows it a little better. So here we have the fall story. And what's the point of the fall? They screwed up and they got punished, right? That's the way most of us read the fall story. Now the rest of the story is God making up for our screw-ups. Well, certainly you could say that's certainly part of the story. You might even say that is the main story. But what if the authors wanted us to see that the way they understood this was a little different than that? Because many of us grew up in the church in an understanding that God was about punishment. We've screwed up and God's ready to punish. I mean, a whole lot of people grow up in church believing that if they obey God and do the right things, that God blesses them. And if they screw up, God curses them. Surely the curse is like the main part of this. You lost it. You terrible people. Look what you've done to this world. Look what God's going to have to do to get it back from you terrible people. And I think I've shared with you one of the fundamental changes in my understanding of humanity Throughout my adult life, I grew up very much in the theology of the fallen man. I too very much believe in the fallen man because I am one. 
But God didn't approach his people as you screw-ups. He approached his people as, I love you. You're important to me. You bear my image. I want you to be my children. I want you to be with me. Like the most important thing, if you get all of this, is that we love each other. And then after that is that you love each other. I mean, that's like the most, and Jesus said that, right? I mean, the, so this idea that punishment is the main part of this story, or we're just letting you know why things are so bad they are. Uh, okay, maybe that's part of it. Let's go and let's look up. And what I've done is you'll see A, B, C, D. So when we looked at the chiasm in the creation story, it was A, B, C, and then it was C, I'm sorry, then another A, it was a repeat, A, B, C, A, B, C, day one, day four, day two, day five, day three, day six. This chiasm is a mirror, and there's four points, A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, and somewhere in here is our treasure. But what is the treasure of the story of the fall of man? Well, let's read this together. Point A. Uh, I tried to show these in different colors, but our projector's not showing the different. Well, you can see a little bit. Uh, it almost looks like an optical illusion. All right. A1. Can, I, can you all see like a little blue or purple text? A little bit? Okay, maybe it's easier for you all to see back there. Okay, start chapter 3, verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, then your eyes shall be opened. You shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were uh, naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the voice of God walking in the garden toward the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. And God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I, can, I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. That's one of my favorite verses right there. Just men in a nutshell. The woman that you gave to me. Um, anyways, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. What's the point of the story? Well, certainly she messed up, and then he messed up, and then God was really mad. That's not the point of this story. And when our theology rests that that's the point of the story, our theology gets messed up. And just like we talked about foundations last week, the foundation that you build your faith on, it will shape the entire thing. And they constantly pointed back the very beginning of Genesis. Jesus constantly pointed back to the very beginning of Jesus. Genesis. Understand the story. This is how the story began. Now, I've labeled these A1, B1, C1, D1, D2, C2, B2, A2. Do you see that? I know it's really small. I wanted it all on one screen. A1, the serpent said to the woman, this is the blue, supposed to be the blue type. The serpent said to the woman, 
You shall not surely die. And she took of its fruit and ate. That's A1. Drop down to A2, or to A2 verse, chapter 3, verse 13. And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. Literally just repeated what was said in verse 4. B1, and she gave to her husband, and he ate. Let's jump down to B2 there at the bottom, verse 12. And the man said, the woman you gave to me, she gave me, and I ate. It's a perfect mirror. You see that? Everybody following? Everybody's tracking with me? It's a perfect mirror. See, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And if we jump down to C2, who told you you were naked? The perfect mirror. D1. And they heard the voice of God walking in the garden toward the cool of the day. They hid themselves in the presence of God among the trees of the garden. And then we go down to D2. And he said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It's a perfect mirror. I was like, I mean, I know that's good, but I didn't think that. Are you just now getting how good this is? But it was Jeremy all along. Way to go, Jeremy. I don't even know how you did that so fast, but that's awesome. Thank you. That's awesome. I really thought you, I thought like it's an aha moment. But it was because it's red. It's just because the color changed. All right. That's fine. That's fine. Fine with me. So what's the treasure? The treasure is in the center of this chiasm. A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, perfect mirror. Something in the middle is the thing that is most important. What's right in the middle? And what's right in the middle is verse 9. And God called to the man and said, where are you? So the point of the story is not that God is mad at you. The point of the story is God is asking us, where are we? Now, you could totally get that through a Western mindset if you just happen to go, you know, that really sounds important. But would you think it was important if you didn't see that the author was pointing this whole passage to that? Would you have seen that? Usually we would read that and just say, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, God would know where they were. That's kind of weird. How many times do we start our day wondering if God is asking the question, where are we? So now the question isn't about you doing good or doing bad, you getting punished or being blessed. Now the question is, are you with God or are you not? Because God's a relational God. This changes the story. Now the reason I want to show you these things is because we're going to have to unravel some of the stories that we, this lullaby effect has taken over in Genesis 12 through 50. It's why we don't like studying the Old Testament. But if there's a moment that you're feeling lonely and you're wondering, does anyone care about you? And am I just a total screw up? And am I all alone in this world? Would knowing this passage bring you some peace and hope to say, God is still asking where I am because he wants me to be with him? If you do listen to the the Bema podcast, he will uh, he will say, you know, this idea that we argue over 
the creation story, whether this was seven 24-hour periods of time, completely diminishes the message that's being given there. Completely diminishes it. The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, the way that, that I teach here and the way that we teach often, I mean, we'll, do some, we'll shake up some of our teaching and I'll ask questions. And sometimes we have just whole series that are just about you asking questions. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, they wouldn't just say, they, they wouldn't just lay this out like I did. Because I showed you, I didn't even show you my discovery. I showed you someone else's discovery that led me to a discovery. To now I go, and when I ask the question, where are you? I may come to a completely different understanding of what God's trying to say to me in that moment than you would, but someone else detailed this out for me just like I'm detailing it out for you. But a rabbi wouldn't teach that way. A rabbi would teach more by asking questions than giving statements because they recognized if I tell you, maybe you hold me to some high position and therefore you take my opinion instead of your own, but they knew you will not actually learn anything if you don't discover these truths for yourself. So now reading the Bible every day is not about, well, I better do it or God won't bless me. God's going to punish me because we know how it worked out in the fall. I mean, they screwed up and God punished. And it, it becomes less about that and more about, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This story is amazing. It's story laid on story, laid on story, laid on story. And part of what we're going to try to do through, through the rest of the series is we're going to try to uncover, so what's the main story? It's the foundation. All these other stories are important, but it's the main story that God's telling that we've got to get right. But some of that story for you is going to be, what are you discovering? And if your only engagement with Scripture is here on Sunday mornings, you're not discovering much. I'm sharing my discovery with you. And if you read the Bible as something, I just have to memorize this, or I just have to know this stuff, you miss the living, active Word of God. This is why guilting and shaming into reading the Bible doesn't work. There was a time that Chattanooga was... Named the most biblically literate city in the country. Did you know that? Not too long ago. Like more Chattanoogans knew the Bible than any other city in the country. And our city's a mess. Our city's a mess. This is what I'm leaving you with today. That's all I got for you, but this is what I'm leaving you with. The Bible's meant to help us discover God through a story of God's faithfulness to restore us to our original place. That is a place of bearing His image and being with Him. For some of you who feel that God has left you, abandoned you, doesn't care about you anymore. Your story is as multi-layered as this one is. And if God is going to take such great care with his story, do not think for one minute he's not going to take that great a care of your story. Your story is as important. He's taking care of your story. 
I find we stereotype people because we recognize in ourselves when we look in the mirror a level of complexity based on our experiences, our beliefs, the things we've gone through, the things we're hoping for. But when we look at someone else, we stereotype into one bundle. I got you figured out. I mean, I'm complex, but you're only this. You can lay that to any group of people. They're all complex. Your story is complex. God is a God who manages complex stories well. Will we discover it? And the question I leave you with, what will you discover as you explore the stories found in the rest of Genesis? What will you discover? I'll probably share, I will share some of the things I've discovered that I think are important. But for you... It will be a failed series if you don't discover something completely on your own. Maybe, just like I've learned some things about these two passages that have helped me discover some new things. So maybe it will prompt you in your journey of discovery, but I hope that you will have one. And I hope you'll ask some hard questions, because we're going to ask some hard questions through this series. Next week, I'm going to do the very same thing um, through the story of Noah. And that, just, that shows us some very interesting things, but it's spread over several chapters, so it, we couldn't cover that all today. I'm not going to read the whole thing. If you want to go back and read the story of Noah, you'll be more prepared, but I'm going to lay out the chiasm and the larger story of Noah next week, and then we're going to jump into the story of Abram. And the very first question we're going to try to wrestle with is why Abram? Why Abram? All right? pray we're going to take communion together and i hope you'll be back next week i'm gonna this will be on our podcast and um you can go back and re-watch it on youtube tomorrow it takes a day for youtube to show up after the live event stops or it'll be on facebook um and i may cut some of these sections out that you can just see those sections i'd really love for you to wrestle a little bit with this stuff and anyone, the other people in the room that are familiar with this concept, they would probably also tell you this is just supercharge your faith and your, the power of Scripture to transform you. All right?